All right, so just continuing on from this morning, um, how deep the Father's love for us, and then our assurance of pardoning grace, which is taken from Philippians 2, it talks about how great the Father's love is for us, that he would send his only son, and the son then would, he would disrobe himself of his heavenly glory, it says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and he would take upon himself the nature of a servant made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, he would go even lower and he would humble himself to death on a cross. And so today, as we talk about whole life discipleship, we have to talk about whole life discipleship in the context, not just of this passage, but of where Jesus is going and where he's heading. He's heading toward Jerusalem, where he will die on the cross for our sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, talked about costly grace that this grace of Jesus Christ that is given to us, though it cost us nothing to receive it, it's free. It cost Jesus everything to give it to us. And that's why we, we talk about things like whole life discipleship. What type of discipleship is commensurate to such a gift of grace? It is whole life discipleship. Unfortunately, in the church, uh, we're too often guilty of half-life discipleship, partial discipleship, of even using the cross and grace and talking about grace as like a kind of a cover-up for our own gaps and uh, our unwillingness to really follow Jesus. I, I find it the, in the parable of the ten minus, it says, um, for those at the very end, verse 27, for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and then earlier when he calls uh, the ten servants, he talks about we do. They said we do not want this man to reign over us. That's exactly what Jesus has come to do. He's come to reign. He's come to reign over us. He's come to reign over us by grace. He has given everything for us, and he calls us to follow him as whole life disciples. Unfortunately, being honest about ourselves is not something that is natural to us as human beings, whether we be in the church or not in the church. Uh, com- there's a comedian, Chris Rock, who has a skit that he does that's just rather hilarious. He talks about why dating is so exhausting. He says dating is so tiring because we know that the person we're going out with doesn't really want to go out with us. They want to go out with somebody else. And so our job is to create the person for that person that we're going out with on a date that they might actually want to go out with. He said, that's why when you meet someone for the first time, you don't meet them, you meet their representative. You meet their representative. And we're all going around, you know, it's so part of our nature to actually present our representative to other people than to present ourselves that it's almost second nature to us not to be authentic to live gap-filled lives. You know, the London Tube, which is their subway system in London, the slogan of the tube system is mind the gap. Mind the gap. The gap in the London Tube system is the distance between the platform and the subway. Maybe it's a couple of feet. Why do you mind the gap? Because what happens in the gap can kill you. It can kill you. And what happens in the gaps in our lives can kill us too. They can kill us too. In 2015, there was a a data leak of a website called Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison, where 
not only people outside the church, but many people in the church, even pastors, were exposed. Ashley Madison was a, a website that uh, the slogan was, life is short, have an affair. And many signed up and thought, and they, they pledged anonymity. You would never be caught, never found out. And they were found out in 2015. I think it was about 33 million people. And that was striking for us to recognize this. The reality is, in the end, we all are going to be found out. It's going to be a gigantic data leak. There will be no secrets, and there are no gaps. The gaps that are going to be revealed, there's nothing that you can hide in the gap. And so Jesus is doing us a great favor. It says there in verse 11 that the people there believed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That was the impression they were under. And so Jesus used that to his advantage because in Jesus' mind, what's the difference? Now or later, it's going to happen. So let me get this opportunity, Jesus says, to show you what it's going to be like in the end. Jesus in Luke 19 calls us to mind the gap in our lives. That gap could be called the integrity gap. That, that gap is the distance between who you really are and who you portray yourself to be, who you really are and who your representative says that you are. That's the integrity gap. The smaller the gap, the greater the integrity. The bigger the gap, the more the hypocrisy. And listen, in 2022, we know this applies to pastors as well. Apparently a lot of pastors have forgotten that. The closer you are to church leadership, the greater the temptation to hide your sin because it can cost you your job. The closer you are to the church, the greater we, you know, people are in the person. The greater the um, temptation is to hide, because it might you might lose your reputation. But actually, the grace of God should free us to be honest about who we really are. Because it's in that honesty, it's in that place of not putting out a representative to Jesus, because Jesus knows who we are. He knows we're not really our our representative, as Chris Rock said it. As we present who we really are to Christ, as we're authentic people. And I believe, why did we come in here? I believe, I truly believe you came in here because you want to be authentic. You didn't come in here because you didn't want to be real. You could have chosen other churches. We talked too explicitly about the meaning of the gospel in this church for you to not want to be authentic. And so I implore you, let's take Jesus' words seriously here in Luke 19. In Luke 19, first of all, we're going to see that whole life discipleship begins with divesting of your kingdom divesting of your kingdom. And then we'll look at how whole life discipleship continues in investing in God's kingdom. And then finally, we'll get to the end up to the point where we realize God will evaluate us himself as the Lord regarding how we've minded our gaps and how we've lived our lives as whole life disciples. Let me pray for us. God, I pray you would take your word and illuminate our hearts. Lord, I pray Uh, where repentance is needed, I I know that it's needed in all of our lives. I pray that we would um, repent and believe that we would receive your grace. We would see that, Lord, especially as we see the story of Zacchaeus, that you're a God of, of incredible grace and mercy in our lives. And I pray that our response to that mercy would be wholehearted, whole life following of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So where whole life discipleship begins is divesting of your own kingdom. Divesting. Giving away your resources. Giving away those things that you find dear to yourself and to your story. 
in verses 1 through 10, we, this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, one of the first stories we teach our children, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. So Zacchaeus was a, a short, wee little man. He was a small man. Um, he, if you want to imagine him, I kind of imagine him like Lord Farquaad and Shrek, um, if you want to put that image in your mind. He was a short guy, and he was a lot like Farquaad, too, because apparently he was kind of bullied as a kid, and now he's ruling, and he's in charge, and he has the biggest house in town, and everybody hates him for it, because how did he get the biggest house in town? It's because he's been taking everybody's money. So the first thing we see in Zacchaeus is sin. What Zacchaeus lacked in size, he made up for in sin. What is not mentioned in the song is that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, not just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. So the tax collector, the, the, the average guys were skimming some off the top, but the chief tax collector is skimming some off the top of the top. So he is just making it rich, and he's hated in society because he is a Jew, and he's taking money for the, on behalf of the Romans, but he's pocketed it for himself. For himself, And so uh, in that extortion, taking more money than he was really owed, people began to really hate him. That's why he was very rich, as it says in verse 2. J.C. Ryle says the story of Zacchaeus is in the Bible to show us that no one is too bad to be saved. It, like in a Jewish mind, what Zacchaeus is doing here, this is like the worst of things. You're taking from your own people. You're, you're extorting your own people. This is horrible, um, you know, like loan sharking. It is absolutely the worst, and he's, he's devastating people's lives by making himself rich. And so he shows us a great picture of sin. Have you, like Zacchaeus, done really bad things in your life that either people don't know about or everybody knows about? If you have, then keep listening because you're a sinner like me and like Zacchaeus. So the second thing we see after sin is seeking. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. So Zacchaeus is a sinner who finds himself climbing up a tree. He is a sinner who is also a seeker. Why is he a seeker? Well, we're not privy to that, but maybe the greed and the extortion and his sins have piled up so high on him, and his awareness of his guilt and his shame before God and before other people is so, so present and so tangible Maybe he realizes that Jesus can do something about it. Or perhaps he's just intrigued. He realizes that his money can't buy him happiness, and he's just intrigued with this man that everyone seems to be excited about. But sinners, by God's grace, become seekers. God puts Jesus on their hearts and minds, and they find themselves interested in Christ. Are you a seeker this morning? Are you interested in finding out about more more about Jesus. So he was a sinner, who was a seeker, and then there is calling. At this point where Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, Jesus is also seeking him. I love verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, he called out to him, Zacchaeus. Now, how did he know Zacchaeus' name? I mean, maybe in the moment he heard other people saying his name, and he just learned it. I, I doubt it. I think Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name a really, really long time like before he was born. And he came to Jericho that day. He also met Bartimaeus in Jericho. That was last week, so he came for Bartimaeus. He also came for Zacchaeus on the other end of the economic spectrum. 
and he knew Zacchaeus' name, called him out. Zacchaeus had to be one of the most unlikely people that Jesus could have called on in the opinion of other people. I can just see other people cheering Jesus on. Oh, finally, Zacchaeus is going to get what's coming to him. And that's right, he is. But what's coming to him is not judgment, but grace. Very different than other people expected. And Jesus says to him, come down, I will be dining at your house today. This is the only story in the Gospels where Jesus invites himself to someone else's house. Normally, in ancient Eastern culture, that's just never done. It's absolutely not something that's done. But Jesus decides he's going to invite himself to Zacchaeus' home. And you can imagine the negative press that Jesus is getting from this. People are probably speculating this is a fundraising event. Maybe Jesus has run out of money. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He doesn't care about the opinions of other people. But this is the way Jesus works. He, he does things that are unheard of. He often invites himself into people's lives long before they think about giving him an invitation. He's inviting himself. And I feel like there are pros and cons to having people invite themselves over to your house. Um, in my neighborhood... Uh, the children in my neighborhood all want to play with my kids, and they all invite themselves over constantly. Um, to th- and on Sunday afternoon, I feel like when I'm trying to take a nap and I'm really trying to keep the Sabbath holy, it's particularly annoying. And so there are these, there's several children that will, honestly, like one, this is recent, recently the doorbell was rung during my nap seven different times, not in one occasion, like in five minutes uh, increments, and it, it drives me crazy. In fact, this has been going on for a really long time. We, at one point in time, made a sign that said, no ringing the doorbell from this time to this time. We're napping. But several of the kids couldn't read, and so I literally made a, a sign that had someone's finger at a doorbell with a red X over it. And I've told Olivia, it still didn't work. I told her I wanted to get it laminated because I feel like that we need to make even more of a point. Generally, we love to have people in our home, but, but nap time on Sundays is, is sacred. But there are occasions where inviting someone into your home actually can change your life. I heard a story of a, uh, a way a blessing came to someone's house where, uh, this is talking about a close friend. Uh, somebody calls his close friend and says, hey, I just met somebody at a bus stop that I think really needs help. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. I'm going out of town. I think you should invite them over. And so the friend, this is close friendship, believed his friend and actually called the guy and invited him over. And what led, uh, followed is one of the greatest blessings of his life. They could not think of a solid reason not to invite the stranger in, and so they did. So this man that they invited in at one point was one of the most leading pianists in all the United States. He was absolutely brilliant. His career was blossoming until he began to drink excessively. And becoming an alcoholic, it had driven him into the the pit, and he had found grace, and he had found Christ, and he was trying to rebuild his life. He was still an amazing pianist, and he would often play for them. He was also extremely interesting to talk to about faith, and their six- or seven-year-old daughter was just fascinated with him, recognized that part of the story. Most of us would not invite someone in if we have a six- or seven-year-old daughter, especially a man. But in fact, they did, and in fact, through their relationship, this man became a close friend of the family, 
and they saw their daughter cling to faith in, a, in Jesus in a fresh new way. Nine years later, their daughter died of cancer, and they tra- trace her faith story back to this encounter with this pianist that they led into their home nine years before. Maybe Jesus is that kind of a disrupting guest. Maybe he seems terribly inconvenient to you. But if you invite him in, he'll change everything for the good in your life. So the fourth thing we see here is receiving. After sin and seeking and calling, we see receiving. Look at how Zacchaeus responds to Jesus and to Jesus' invitation. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, this seems to be Zacchaeus' point of conversion because he went from sitting in a tree and observing Jesus to actually responding to Jesus' call. Now, many of us are great at observing Jesus. We can tell you all about him. We are incredible information minds about the Bible and Christianity and about all of Jesus' life, but have you trusted Jesus? Have you responded to his call? Phil Riken says, There's a time and a place for curiosity, for sitting up in a tree and looking at Jesus, but there's also a time and a place for getting down from the tree and welcoming Jesus in with open arms like Zacchaeus did. Have you ever responded to Jesus like Zacchaeus did that day? So the fifth part of the story is divesting. Divesting. So Zacchaeus, upon receiving God's grace, he... Uh, is transformed. Look at how he responds to receiving God's grace in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The first thing that we notice that we have clear conviction of our sin and our need for God's grace is that there is clarity about how we have done wrong. There's clarity. It's not ambiguous. We're not, we don't think of ourselves as general people who have sometimes done bad things. We can think of actual particular things we've done that are wrong where we need God's grace and God's forgiveness. But beyond being convicted of these sins, Zacchaeus wants to make restitution for the wrongs that he has done. Again, he's not doing this so that Jesus will forgive him. This is so important. He is not responding this way so that Jesus will forgive him. He has already been forgiven. And the response to grace in his heart is that he would then make restitution. Not so he will receive grace, but because of grace. Because it is is consistent with grace. Because he wants to give his whole life, and in particular, his financial life, which has been the center of his sin and his life, he wants to make sure there... He makes good, and he does what is required and is right of him in this situation. When he says, if, here, if I have wronged someone, he doesn't mean, um, I'm not sure if I've wronged anyone. He means, I haven't wronged absolutely everyone. (laughs) But in the case where I have wronged someone, and there are many cases, I will pay back. Jewish law required one-fifth, 20%. He says, I will give back four times, 400% of what I owe. In fact, he says, you know what? That's going to get really financially confusing. So rather than needing to hire an accountant and figure out what four times is, I'm just going to give away half of my wealth because it probably hasn't exceeded that level. And that is what repentance looks like in his life. 
when this kind of divestment happens in a person, this is a sign that the new life of the gospel has come to this house. Repentance, it's not just for the first day of your Christian life. It is for every day of your Christian life. Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. So this isn't a one-time event. This is the way we go about our lives as Christians. We are repenters. Pastors should be, and Christian leaders should be chief repenters. I'm sorry when you haven't seen that to be the case in this church. I'm sorry when you haven't seen that to be the case in the world around us, in the Christian world around us. It should not be so. Christian pastors and leaders should be much more like Zacchaeus than we are. When I was in China, I had a personal falling out with another missionary in our city. Um, we were friends, um, and but I just, I felt like I was living in China as a missionary. It was very hard. I didn't have a lot of emotional margin, and I found this person's personality, frankly, and the way they did life to be grating on me and very difficult. And even though he considered me to be a good friend, and even though I knew he was really struggling, I did not reach out to him. I didn't reach out to him for like over a year. And I knew he expected me to do this. I was in a place of leadership, and he expected this of me, and I didn't do that to maintain my emotional margin. And there's, a, you know, there's some psychological wisdom in having boundaries and all of that. But when the Holy Spirit convicts you and you should do something and you don't do it, it's a sin. And I didn't pursue him. And so after a year of this, um, I just felt so convicted that I called him and I asked him to go out for coffee. Olivia and I uh, had bought him a, a, and his wife a nice gift as an expression of our sorrow. And I gave it to him and told him I was sorry. And he proceeded to tell me just how angry he was at me. And he really let me have it. And I said I was sorry. At the end, he said, I hope we can, I do forgive you, and I hope we can be friends. And to be honest, our friendship hasn't been quite the same since then. But it, there was restoration, and there was some good that came from that. But that's the type of thing, that's the type of uncomfortable situation. I told a story about myself cheating last week, and this week it's about not loving someone. I mean, this is the kind of uncomfortable situation you find yourself in as a Christian sometimes, where you're like, man, my life is really not being lived according to and consistent with the grace of God. And oftentimes what ends up happening is you have to divest yourself of something that is dear to you because it is an idol and because the Holy Spirit is calling you to do it, because you actually do love Jesus more than that thing. And in order to demonstrate that, you have to lay it down. You lay it down. You divest. You unload. You offload things that you find valuable to your personal identity that are inconsistent with the grace of the gospel. And so we see Zacchaeus divesting one of the most um, famous verses in the New Testament is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He, Jesus, in this moment, finds this moment to be when he's going to reveal something very close to the center 
of his messianic identity. Why did I come? Let me tell you now, right after Zacchaeus is converted, I came to seek and save the lost. I came for Zacchaeus. I came for Bartimaeus. I came for Corey. I came for my people. And we're called to respond to him by divesting. So how whole life discipleship continues This is the second point, is investing in God's kingdom. So it's no coincidence that the parable of the ten minus comes just after the the story of Zacchaeus. So here we have this this brother that receives God's grace and divests himself of his resources. He, He offloads. And Jesus says that's step one. Step two is that you invest. You invest in something new. How whole life discipleship continues as you invest in God's kingdom. The first aspect that's important here is something I talked about earlier, is kingship, is lordship. You have a new lord. You know, often in churches we talk about Jesus as our savior, which he absolutely is, but he's also our lord. He saved us so he could rule over us and and set us straight in ways that are actually such a blessing for us. There are moments in life when we can't see how God's lordship is is good sometimes. It feels inconvenient. It feels like he's leading us in ways that don't make sense. But then there are moments when God peels back the curtain and he shows us as we followed him through the valleys of the shadow of death. He shows us what he's been doing and he shows us how good that he is. But it's required that we have to trust him. We have to follow him. He's called a shepherd. He's one who leads us through our lives, and he is also our Lord, our King. And so we get to the parable of the ten minus. So we have kingship, and then we have investing in God's kingdom instead of our kingdom. How do we do that, and what can we learn from this parable? So this is a different kind of parable than the one in Matthew. There's a parable, parallel passage where in Matthew there are talents that are given out, but the talents are of different amounts. One is given ten, five, different amounts. But in this Luke rendition of the parable, everyone gets the same amount. Everyone gets ten. Ten people get ten. And, and we see this, this, you have ten talents that are given out to each person in the parable. And, and so in the story, you know, what does that illustrate? What it illustrates is that each and every one of us is equal in the body of Christ. It's easy to see that you think some people have greater gifts than me, other people have greater gifts than other people. Actually, Jesus is saying, in this parable, the way I'm looking at you here is that you all have the same. You've been given the same amount by me. You have the same equal minor, the same investment that Jesus has made in you that you can invest in the world around you. It's easy for us to think that there are special Christians with a special calling. And that we're not one of those Christians, and so we're not called quite like everybody else is called. There's a story of a missionary. I told this story before, but it's, it's one of my one of these stories that just resonated with me. That there's a missionary that came back from the mission field. He's he's this been there for a long time. He's he's kind of awkward socially. Um, the church had a, a dessert, invited a lot of people. Not many people came. Um, and he presents, this is back in like the 80s where you have actually uh, the, the slideshow, you know, where it's like, like actually flicking around the circular thing. And he gets to the end of the slideshow. And uh, it's this amazing story about people converting in the jungle. And, but so distant from the life of a suburbanite. And so he asks if there's any questions and there's just crickets. 
No one's saying anything. And so an elder in a, uh, a starch suit in the back who'd come from work late decides he'll get the conversation going. He says, um, tell us how you knew that you had this special calling. And uh, the missionary just stopped and kind of looked a little bit confused. And he looked at the ground and he said, special calling? Who ever said anything about a special calling? I've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ just like you have. They're not the called and the uncalled. They're the obedient and the disobedient. And there were no more questions after that. I think everybody was scared. But, I mean, he hit the nail on the head. I mean, what kind of a special calling do you want? I mean, Jesus died for you. He loves you. He's calling you to follow him. He's giving you, in the parable, ten mina. Now, for us, we rarely think about our spiritual lives on these terms. We're used to thinking about our finances on these terms, uh, maybe our time management, being very meticulous about how we spend our time. But we rarely think about how we manage, like, our spiritual portfolio. Like, what has God given you? Well, he's given you uh, time, same amount of time, everybody else. He's given you talent, different talents, but you are talented. You have talents that, that he has given to you. He's given you treasure. He's given you an amount of money. That amount is different than other people. He's given you that. He's given you people, relationships. He's put you where he's put you in the body of Christ, in the world. And everyone has relationships that they're given. There's some inequality there to how hard it is for you or how, many, how blessed you've been relationally. But we've been given these things, and, and this makes up your spiritual portfolio. You have this. this is, these are gifts to you given by God. Superseding all of this is you've been given God's grace. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given his church. You've been given what you've been given, and that is your ten mina. I need to think about following on from the story of Zacchaeus, divesting of your resources. Now, as we divest, we're also taking what we have and we're investing this in God's kingdom. How is God calling you to take what you have at the stage of life that you're in, at the stage of your faith that you're in, how is he calling you to follow after him? How's he calling you to take your spiritual portfolio and invest that for the sake of his glory rather than your own glory? How's he calling you to do that? Now, I can tell you that we rarely think about this, and if you don't stop and actually make a point to think about it, this extremely important question, it actually is more important than all the other questions. Um, we don't do it because we're so busy on Facebook. Uh, we're so busy on Instagram. We're so busy driving our kids around our SUVs and our minivans. We're so busy at work. We're so busy trying to put food on the table. We're legitimately busy people. People in Cary are busy. I mean, if you live in the suburban triangle, man, you are a busy, busy person. And so there's an exceptional danger here for you that you could be so busy that you never take time, even like an hour, to think about this question. Among all your hours, one hour to think about, how have I been blessed? How can I, how should I, how am I being called to invest my life in the kingdom of God? That's a typical question that we reserve for pastors and missionaries, but actually everyone is called to ask the question and to answer. And I'll warn you that it's going to require you, once you ascertain what God is calling you to do, it's going to require you to say no sometimes. 
It's going it's to create some uncomfortable no's in your life. Where we say no to things in life often is more important than where we say yes. Where you say no is where you, dis, you, you draw a boundary line and you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to not do this. And too many of us are yes people, yes men and women. Sure, I'll do that. I can do that for you now. Like, maybe you should say no. Maybe you say no to me. It's hard to say no to your pastor. Uh, say no to people. You've got to discern what God wants you to do with your life and do that with whatever God's calling you to do. So we divest, and then we invest, and then finally there's a final evaluation. And that's what's so disturbing about this parable, to be honest with you. Man. And Jesus, again, this is like my fourth week where Jesus just brings it. I mean, he is so unconcerned about how we feel about social awkwardness. I mean, he really doesn't care that you get uncomfortable. He cares so much more about you and you loving him and him knowing how much that he loves you and you actually living your life in a way that glorifies him that he's willing to really ask the hard question, the question that nobody else is willing to ask. He's willing to take us to a place that we don't want to go which is to the final judgment. And we know this is a final judgment because of verse 27, which is deeply uncomfortable, where he tells us that those who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So we know that is the, this is final. We don't want there to be this type of evaluation, and we certainly at the end of the evaluation don't want judgment. And we don't want that judgment to include hell or being separated from God. But Jesus talked about final judgment and being separated from him quite often. The parable in the end, we learned that Jesus will expose your gaps in a way that doesn't compare to Ashley Madison. He will expose your gaps. If you're a person who did not want Jesus to reign over you, which is what this parable is about. If you did not want Jesus to reign over you, then in the end, you will still not want Jesus to be a person who reigns over you. And Jesus is just going to call it what it is. He's just going to say, you didn't want me to be your king. And so I'm not. And so I'm not. For those who are punished here in the end, in their gaps, where they realize there's a gap, there is no repentance. In their falseness, there is no admission. There is no seriousness to live by the grace of God. No real pursuit of holiness that comes when the Holy Spirit lives in you. In, in a nutshell, there's nothing like Zacchaeus in their life. There's nothing, all they, they might have received God's grace and said, you know, amen, nice sermon, but never did they ever experience like a whole life moment where they said, God, I want to give you my life. I want to follow you, whatever that requires and whatever that means. And Jesus is going to say on the final day, there's going to be that one camp and there's going to be another group who on that final day, because they had received God's grace like Zacchaeus, that grace had deep influence in their lives like Zacchaeus, and Jesus will welcome them into his kingdom, and he will confer blessing upon them. And he will give them even greater blessing in his kingdom because they chose the way of the king in his kingdom. But what's interesting about this parable is that on that final day, there seems to be at least for our own consideration at this moment, three possible outcomes of where we might find ourselves today. 
Because we don't just find reward and punishment, even though ultimately there really only are two groups. But we see in this parable, Jesus for some reason raises a third category for us. It's a category of uncertainty. There's something um, very disconcerting about verse 20 where it says there's this one person that's been given gifts, but they didn't invest them, and so they lose it. They lose the gifts that have been given to them. Nobody's really sure. There's a lot of disunity about what happens in the end with this last person. Some people believe that this person truly believed, um, but, but barely. Like, there was just a, a very small hint of faithfulness, and so God said, come on in. And other people say this is a guy, this is a person who, who you know, pledged and said, yeah, I, I believe, but there was no... There's no commensurate obedience and no faithfulness. And we're just not really sure. And I think that the best takeaway from this is you don't want to be uncertain. You don't want to be asking the question, am I in or am I out? You know, am I a, a disciple of Christ or not? Am I following Jesus or not? I want to be very clear because it could be tempting to believe that this passage teaches salvation by works. It does not teach that because of what comes before that with Zacchaeus. What comes before it with Zacchaeus is a man who has done nothing, nothing. And he receives God's grace and it changes everything. And so what happens in the lives of people who have received God's grace is that they, they transform, they change. And even, and not a single one of us, if you think about a trivial pursuit pie chart, you know, not every one of us has all the pieces of the pie wholly dedicated to Jesus. It is a process but what it is, is it is a desire to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my King, and I want to follow you. I do want you to reign over me. I do want to follow you. Help my unbelief. Help me to grow as a Christian. I don't believe that Zacchaeus' story is meant to be exceptional. I think it's meant to be a normal picture of a response to Jesus. You can invest your life for God out of fear or of exposure which is something that you could take from the parable of the 10 minus, and that's not the worst thing. Fear is a motivator. But the better motivator than fear is grace. Because what's offered to you in this passage is the grace of God, the grace of God that is given to us. Like we talked about in the baptism, as we think about our lives and all that we go through, and what it's going to be like at the end of your life as you look back on your life and all the mistakes you've made. I know that the more I live, the more mistakes I make, the more I know I need God's grace. But I believe in Jesus. I believe that my life is, is one of following him and that he has given me his grace, is enabling me to walk on as we follow him. And I want to underscore that I, so clear from the world we see around us and from the disciples who follow Jesus, that I am no different from you. If there's anyone in, in all of human society that is more apt to bring their representative to church rather than themselves, it is pastors. And all of us are called, though, to not just bring a false person, a false persona to others, or to Jesus, but we're just called to be real. And in that place of reality that you sit today where you find yourself, you're called to give all of the, you understand about yourself right now to all you know and understand right now about Jesus Christ. That is faithfulness. That is faithfulness. All you know of yourself to all you know about Jesus right now. So how should you respond to Jesus today? Well, 
It depends. It depends on where you are on the path of whole life discipleship today. Maybe you're not on the path yet. Maybe you're still sitting up in that tree and you're just wondering and you're considering, but you need to say yes to Jesus' invitation. Maybe today you realize you're a huge gap-filled sinner like Zacchaeus, and you're seeing those gaps and you realize you need to come clean. You have been nursing and nurturing those gaps in your life instead of seeking to close them through repentance and faith. And so you need to do that today. You need to come into the light and follow Jesus. Maybe you've received the grace of Jesus, but you've never really begun to divest of your own little kingdom and invest in Jesus' kingdom. Your whole life is really about you. Every conversation is like a PR opportunity for yourself instead of an opportunity to glorify God. Maybe you need to think about investing in God's kingdom and divesting of your kingdom. Maybe you've sincerely received the grace of Jesus, but lately you've been depressed or discouraged, and you feel like you're not making any kind of a difference in the kingdom of God. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Our perception of ourselves is not reality. Jesus sees you, and he sees all the ten mina that he's given to you. He sees all the opportunities that you have unique to your life, your age, your personality, your story, and he's calling you to follow after him. What does it look like to have a Zacchaeus-like response to the gospel for you today? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that in this holy space where you have invaded our worlds and you teach us about your love for us that comes at a cross, that comes at all expense to you, and in order to receive your grace, no expense for us. Lord, I pray that we would follow you in your path of the cross, divesting of ourselves, investing in your kingdom, so that on that day we can have full and total confidence that that grace we've received has led to transformation in our lives. Lord God, where it has not yet, and we see that so clearly, Lord, we pray that you would continue to be at work. Lord, we do desire for you to reign over us. You are our king. We tell you that. And we ask that you would continue to lead us on as the good shepherd of the sheep. Lord, I pray in particular for anyone today who has um, an experience in the church where they... Or um, sermons like this about final judgment um, are just really hard to receive because they've been spoken out of what didn't feel like love as they think back on those moments. Lord, I pray that they would know and they would see you, the one who called Zacchaeus, the one who invited yourself into his home, the one who loved him as the one who loves us, the one who invites yourself in. And like the story we heard earlier, is so beautiful and so talented and so precise in your love that you change everything. Lord, would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name.